We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. One of the most innovative writers of all time, Nikolai Gogol. Let's talk about his novel that was um, actually, the idea was given to him by someone else today, coming up. <laughs> you ever looked at somebody and just said, that person has a dead soul as you look into their eyes. Wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> all right. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am a live crypto. If you are new to the Codex Cantina, we take some of the most important literature that has influenced even today's writers. If you're down for a conversational approach to literature, hit that subscribe button to join us. And as always, we start off with publication information. Dead Souls was published in 1842, but we'll talk about this very long journey to get there. And our version was translated by two guys' names that Una will say for me. And we'll leave a link down in the description where you can read and listen for free. My version was translated by a man and a woman named Richard Pivier and Valhonsky. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't need to butcher the, the names any further than I'm going to through this review. <laughs> Nikolai Gogol, one of my most favorite writers, Ukrainian-born but wrote for Russia too, kind of claimed by both sides, if you will. Either way, one of the most innovative and creative writers to have ever existed. What's amazing about Gogol is that he writes Ukrainian magical realism before there was Latin magical realism. And it's even arguable that this novel might be more grounded than some of his short stories, but let's kind of get into that today. One of the things that's kind of interesting in my foreword is they talk about how this isn't a novel, this was supposed to be considered a poem, right? He didn't want to be bound to the structure of traditional novels. He wanted to use characters, bring them in and out of the scene as he saw fit. Another thing of to note is that this was intended to be a trilogy, and he only writes the first two and then destroys the second part of the trilogy mere days before he dies. So this is incomplete. We only have the first part of the poem. How selfish of him to go up and die. But we have this quote from him where he says, <laughs> Him I have taken as a type to show forth the vices and the failings, rather than the merits and the virtues of the commonplace Russian individual. And the characters which revolve around him have also been selected for the purpose of demonstrating our national weaknesses and shortcomings. So this story is going to be a little bit of an allegory and a little bit of realism, but definitely a healthy dose of hyperbole and not afraid to satirize basically anything in this novel. Gogol is taking what he sees and turning up his Gogol meter to really kind of increase the weirdness that you feel, and it lets you kind of evaluate perhaps things under a different light than if it had just been prevented, presented straightforward as fact. Yeah, this is a story that many people take many different things from. I think that's why it's such a good discussion piece and we're guided so highly is that nobody really kind of agrees upon the purpose or what is going on in the poem. Even Vladimir Nabokov kind of even argues with Gogol saying, no, it's stupid to try to look at this and think this is real people or even representative of real people. So 
pick your side on how you want to interpret this. This is literature. Let it speak to you and let it come out for what its true meaning is. Now, one thing we can agree upon is some of the historical context, right? Real quick, okay, is how serfdom was working in 1842. If you are unfamiliar with what serfdom is, it is not slavery, but it's it's probably the closest that, that we have to considering it. You know, serfdom was peasants that were tied to land. Uh, it was a hereditary system where you worked and were born and were basically subject to the landowner and had to do whatever they said. Now, where this story comes in, what, what the creative force behind this is the landowners didn't pay taxes directly themselves. They owned the land, okay? But they paid taxes on par- partially the, the peasants, amongst other taxes. I don't want to say it's only that. So what they did is they collected money from the peasants basically to pay these taxes, okay? Now, here's where the idea of the story comes in that's rather fascinating, is the census. The first thing is that a census is where they count all of the people and they put where each person lives to be able to tally how much is owed for each plot of land. And this census in our country is every 10 years now. But here back in the 19th century Russia, it's pretty inconsistent. Sometimes it's 10, 12, 15 years. And so during all this shuffling, they'll move the serfs around or who is supposed to own the serfs tied to these specific lands to manipulate how much they're going to have to pay in the taxes. It's genius. So example, in 1815, the next census wasn't until 1833. That's a long time between census where, to the point of this story, a serf may pass away, but you're paying taxes still on that serf and have to collect the money for it. So that's where the, the, the core of this idea is. And you'll have to remember too that the, the world is shifting, right? We had slavery in America in 1842. It's not until 65 that it kind of gets abolished in America. And it's the same thing Russia is going to where there's this uprising and this movement and these thoughts about human rights and about whether these people should be treated this way. There's people that take advantage of it, and there's people that are pushing for some of the freedom. So Gogol is writing this at a time as there's kind of this movement towards abolishment of serfdom, abolishment of the feudalism in Russia at the time. And he must have been really bummed, right? Because it felt like that just prior to this, that there was going to be the abolishment of slavery, and it looked like that Alexander I was going to abolish it, and it doesn't happen, and he dies, and then his brother takes over, and of course kind of squashes all of this, and pushes us towards this romantic era of all of these wonderful works that we'll see through the late 19th century in Russia. So let's move into to some of our spoiler chat where we're going to kind of discuss, analyze, and break down some of this book and its meanings. So Mr. Crypto, one of the first things I was going to talk to you about today, and, and, and Gogol, how dare you have taken this away from me, I was going to talk about how I saw so much of modern day individuals in the story about how we still see people like Manilov, how we still see people like Blyushkin and stuff like that. These are all people I can just name on my fingers how many people that I've met just like that. But then Gogol inserts himself in the story and is just like, yo, I did this on purpose. Do you not see a bit of yourself in in Chichikov? Do you not see people like this? Write me letters about how you've seen these sort of things. And I'm like, oh, 
dude, that was going to be one of my big points for this video. You ruined it, Gobo. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've gone down this path before, right? Where we've seen how we're supposed to choose which person we're supposed to relate with. And again, I'm like, ah, am I this guy? Well, I kind of am. Does that make me a good or a bad person? What does that say about me of which characteristics I'm choosing out of each of these characters that I want to be? Some very lovely, interesting characters that Gogol comes up here in Dead Souls. So I have three points I want to go through with you today, Mr. Crypto. And the first one's super half-baked, so I kind of need your help on it. <laughs> but it's it's kind of built upon, well, let me put it this way. If the first one fails and I just do two points, you realize that the first one failed so bad that the second one kind of relies on that first one that <laughs> I've really written myself into a corner here. So bear with <laughs> us in this video. Stick around because I promise you we're going to wrap these together really well. But I want to go through this with the idea that we're almost satirizing commerce in Russia. Okay, it's kind of like the first point. And along with that, I kind of want to bring up this of, of an allegory of, of Russia in general, if you will, the, the evolution of Russia. So, so stick with me and help me with this, because I know as a history teacher, you can probably bring a lot to the table here that I would need more time to research. So, All right. Two points, three points, fix it in editing. <laughs> so at the time of this writing, right, between 1820, 1860, we're, we're moving towards the abolishment of the feudal system. And at this time in Russia, as, as you, I assume you will back me up on, is that there is kind of like this divide between those that are pushing for it versus those that are still protecting it. And one of the things that's kind of happening at this point in time is there's a lot more mortgages being taken out on, you know, for the state credits being given basically for how many serfs that you have, which gave birth to the idea of this story to begin with, right? Like that's, that is one piece of this puzzle. Yeah, so what we're seeing here in Russia transition is Russia's starting to say, hey, oh, crap, we're so far behind of Europe that we need to catch up. And they realize that they need to push towards capitalism. And this is one of the ways that they're doing that is to sell, sell, sell. So Gogol picks, my, in my opinion, I don't think he depicts any of the landowners in a good light. Maybe there's good qualities to them, but they all have a certain amount of ineptitude and a certain amount of just kind of zaniness to them, a gogleness to them, if you will. Oh, come on. They're corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my, Let's just be honest. My favorite, though, is Manilov, right? He, he is my favorite one of all of them because, one, he's hilarious, right? But he just wants to be a friend, right? And, and here's where I'm going with this, okay? Stick with me. And again, you don't have to take this interpretation, but it's important to go through this for my next point, is Manilov, okay, he doesn't see value and he surfs the same way that other people do, right? He's the first one that we visit. And he's the one that wants to exchange for friendship, kind of, but no money exchange happening at this point in time. Oh, I would agree with that statement. When we went to visit him, we passed this temple of loneliness, depending on your translation. His kids are named after these European names it's kind of like a callback to enlightenment if you will i would argue and also i think gogol saw a lot of there's a ton of european influence that's seeking its way into the russian culture is one way to put it yeah they're definitely behind and trying to catch up and we we see some hints of that throughout this story that even gogol himself is being influenced by the european romantic writers so the way I took this, if we're going to take this as an allegory of commerce, an allegory of, of, of the Russia of evolution, is this is kind of the beginning, right? We're starting at the beginning with Manilov, where he's kind of representing the barter system, 
where we're tr- there's no currency exchange. We're just exchanging what we think the value is of these things. He wants this friendship out of it. Chichikov wants the dead serfs because he has value in it, right? So there's this this handshake exchange in the beginning of trading. You think, too, this could be that Gogol truly didn't understand the concept of capitalism at this point? Because it's a very new concept that's being born in the world in the 19th century. If we think back to, like, Alexander I, he was the one that pushed for more liberal education. He was the one that was, like, kind of promising a little bit of reform, but it didn't totally actually happen. I think we're starting kind of a little bit further back before we even talk. I think we're going to move towards capitalism, but we're not there yet. Okay, fair enough. So Korobochka, okay, was hesitant to sell her useless dead souls, right? And you'll notice she's the only major female character that we have. And I think women's rights is very complicated <laughs> in Russia. In some ways, in the they world. were ahead of... <laughs> in the world. In some ways, they were ahead of Europe... In some ways, they were very far behind. And anyone who's gone through like the Brothers Karamazov and stuff knows that there's this really complicated system, particularly like back in like the, what do they call that? The, what do they call the Peter the Great when he came back with all those codes, like the Petrin codes or something like that, where basically there was kind of questions as to whether women could inherit land. And those kind of, you know, those went away pretty quick, but. And, and Russia had a very interesting female influence with Catherine the Great and such. There was female influence where, depending on your class, too, you could have a completely different life as a woman in Russia. I think this is where we'll see some people divide and start taking kind of an argument here that, like many of the Russian writers, they struggled to write their female characters. And I know that uh, we've had this discussion before, and I think that, again— Gogol just be like, oh, it's the female character. She has to be more compassionate or more caring than her counterparts. And I think that's going to maybe, you know, trigger some people here. I can see that. I took it a different way, though, where I was doing it as more as risk. Okay. Because if after the bartering system, we had currency come in, right? We had a little bit more of the horticulture versus nomadic, and with currency, you had a you had a conversion rate that you can translate stuff to, and it, it replaced the barter system basically completely. And what we see in this time, particularly when we think of like the early eras, right? So post barter, you had the the horticultures that the horticulture people who would basically be growing things, agriculture type stuff, and you had the nomadic people that would be traveling around. Well. There was a lot of hesitancy, of trust, uh, particularly when communities were smaller. You didn't have your own army. That's why when you had more efficiency and more people in it, you, you could have forward armies. I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. The point being is that there was more uh, risk adversity in those types of, of communities. And I think what you see with her is she's risk adverse, okay? I, I could see how you take it the, the the women route of maybe being more sentimental, but I think Manilov was more sentimental than Korbochka was. And I think with her, what we saw was she wasn't willing to take on any risk until he said, well, I work, I can get you a government contract. I could buy up that lard. I could buy up those pigs. And that's when, boom, she shifted. And also speaking to the women's side of things, they didn't have as many rights when it came to uh, you know, like the when a, when a husband would pass away in terms of where land would go, depending on kids and stuff like that, they didn't have as much control over how that land got passed down over time that they're going to be a little bit more 
risk adverse to these things. So it's only when she has that more surefire way of getting ahead and getting some resources that we see her kind of open up a little bit. I 100% agree with you on this. I think that she is cool, calm, and collective, and that she is very calculating through all of her decisions, and that she knows, hey, if I don't make right decisions here, this could be devastating for my farm, this can be devastating for my family, because she knows how hard it is for a woman in Russia in this time period. So I think that that's why she's a little bit more apprehensive than some of the other you know, buyers and sellers in this story. So I agree with you, but I'm thinking that some people could take this from a different angle, and that's where we see one of the major divides in breaking down the analysis of this poem. Now, next, next, we're going to head more towards commercialism, right? We're, we're going to Nostrioff, <laughs> who, who oh brings Lord. along, who brings along, oh my gosh, lies. He brings along somewhat of a business acumen. Like, I, he's not the strongest business-minded person in here, but he is the person that's like, hey, we got to trade, right? We got to do something. We got to, we got to make, we got to make something happen, right? And it's just like, Chichikov's like, I, I don't need your mule. I don't need your dogs to go hunting. I, I don't have a purpose for this. He's like, well, okay, well, uh, let's let's do some trading. Let's do uh, let's do checkers. You want to play some checkers? Like, he is a guy that's pushing for commerce, basically. Like, he's the coming of age of more of the modern version that we see as opposed to the beginning eras of currency. You ever been walking through the mall and there's those people at the kiosks that are like, hey, you need this, and they're pushing their little wares in your face. You know, Yo, you need this lotion tried on your skin, or you need this gizmo or gadget. This is him. He, <laughs> he, he has the crap that you don't want. <laughs> this is kind of why I pictured him, and he's probably my favorite character because he's so easy to hate. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay, okay. I actually I dislike the last guy the most, but let's let's keep going with this because I think this kind of represents even a little bit more of that push for uh serfdom in a sense too at this time. If you're following the evolution of Russia, and serfdom was actually really important, I think, when it came to military conscription, which played effect into the Napoleonic Wars that pop that came up too, right? And all of this kind of, I think, might be called back to later on when they're talking about Chichikov looking like Napoleon. You'll notice that they talk about him looking like Napoleon in Chapter 8, potentially being Napoleon in disguise. Yeah, so Na Napoleonic Wars are huge to Russian history in so many avenues. And here we know that the Russians are the only ones to beat Napoleon back and, you know, are kind of revered for that. And here we see that the Russians had to sacrifice a lot, many of their people's lives and their agriculture and everything in order to beat uh, Napoleon back. So, yeah, I think we have a little bit of that vibe in here as well. And what happened after they beat Napoleon? So this is when they finally realized how far behind they were of rest of, rest of Europe. But they had one thing that the that Europe did not have, land. And they become the most dominant, largest land force in Europe and probably Asia as well at the time with maybe an argument for China in there. Boom. So there, enter Sobakovich, right? And again, apologies for the names if we're murdering these. We know we are, if we're murdering them. We know we're murdering Oh, I haven't said any yet. Us, I'm letting right? you do them all. <laughs> so Sobakovich, like, to that point now realizes the value of his land in this allegory of the evolution of Russia and commercialism. And what does he do with his dead serfs? But this guy was the greatest wagon builder ever. You should totally pay top dollar for this. And he's asking like a ludicrously expensive price for his dead serfs. And Chichikov's like, dude, what are you talking about? This is Russia maybe becoming into understanding the value that they had. This is the guy that you despise. I think that he is the one you're just like, yep. 
We all know this guy, somebody that thinks that their car is worth way more than it is, or I got this baseball card, or I have this comic that has no corners bent, and it's a 9.9. You're like, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think this kind of leads to Plyushkin, who I think is kind of the future. And if you didn't know, did you know, do you know what the term Plyushkin syndrome is? Oh, no, I don't. That's actually a term that's used to describe someone that's really miserly or one that kind of collects useless hmm. things. And I think this is Gogol's critique of where Russia is headed. If they continue to hold on to these serfs, to hold on to this old archaic system as Europe is blowing past them in terms of things, this is what Russia would become, would be the Plyushkin, which is the holding on to things that are no longer of value to them also called ebay.com in 2021. (laughs) So I think this kind of leads to my second point. Again, stick with me through these, is the idea of what is the point of this novel? And I think this is getting to the heart of this novel, which is the concept of greed, the concept of taking things that you don't need. And I think the way that he explores that is actually more interesting than that central point. The structure of how he explores that is context. And I think this brings up the idea of what is the value of a person? What is the value of their soul? Is this something that should or can be bought between people? It's a very kind of dark concept. Yeah, because you have people like Manilov who gives it away for free. It has no value to him other than buying a friend. And then you got the people like Sobekovich who is pressing for way more than anyone else in this novel. So not everybody agrees on the value. And the reason for that is context, right? What's useful to me is not necessarily an iPhone. If you take that back to 19th century Americans, an iPhone means nothing without the towers or anything else. It's literally pointless where the surroundings matter for things. And something that might be useful for me here in Indiana might be completely useless to you down in Florida, such as, I don't know, a winter coat. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue a little bit there, or maybe put my spin on it, that when you think of Manilov, right, he he puts a different type of value on it where friendship has its own inherent value as well. So he is putting a value, but... No, 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 but you're completely agreeing with me. I am. Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> but But... The value of friendship is not that there's no value. He's just manipulating it to get what he sees as valuable. Because to that point, when Manilov first meets Chichikov, take my dead souls, like he just wanted to be a friend. And then when they meet again, like, okay, so 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 to Chichikov, Manilov has a lot of value to begin with in the opening chapter, right? We're going to meet yes. his wife. We're going to talk to them about like, well, what'd you think of the police chief? Well, what did you think about the mayor? And he's like, oh, they were just fine. Wonderful. And an extraordinary amount of compliments are given in Manilov's chapter, right? Sickingly, yeah. <laughs> and Sickingly then, so. Okay, so that's because in that context, we needed the dead souls from him, right? Like, oh, you've got dead souls? Oh, how many could you sell me, right? Free? Like, Manilov has a lot of value right then. Sign the papers. You know, we're going to get the deeds in chapter eight. You know, they're kind of hugging and kind of kissing, but then Chichikov kind of starts to get a little annoyed, I would say. He kind of wants to run away a little bit from Manilov. Manilov no longer has the value for Chichikov in a different context. 
yeah, I mean, we've sometimes been there, right? Like, I'll hang out with this person for lunch, but I don't want to go hang out further than that. Like, oh, bro, 30 minutes is good, but that's all I can stomach you. Right. <laughs> Which right. is really sad, right? He just wants a friend. Exactly. And then we have the governor's daughter, who, when we first meet, is kind of like this throwaway character from, like, a reader's perspective. To me, I'm just, like, watching Chichikov be, like, the typical you know, stereotypical male in a book of just like falling head over heels, watching this girl in the carriage go by. You're like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Come on, Google. <laughs> and then we yeah. get into, this is way too to, foreshadowed. You knew it was going to happen. Well, we get to the ball and now we see that she does have some different value as the governess's daughter. Right. And that's when Power. we start to, yeah, we start to realize she has a different value. And then we have Nostryov, right, who is the agent of change for how we give value for Chichikov, right? Chapter was eight into to nine and, and ten afterwards was really interesting from a town's view perspective because Chichikov, I mean, he's an average dude, right? Not too fat, not too skinny, pretty polite guy. We'll invite him over. He's, he's an okay guy. But then he becomes this millionaire with 400 serfs going to settle new land and everybody wants to get to know him. The chicks want to be with him. The dudes <laughs> want to be him, to quote Ric Flair. And, and he has all of this value under a different context in chapter eight. But then Nostryov becomes the agent of change, which points out some of the corruption. And then we kind of explore this whole chapter where the town views them differently. Well, now... Chichikov doesn't have as much value to us. So we're coming up with these lies that he's like this peg-legged captain. <laughs> it makes no sense. Or Napoleon, if you wanted to go back to our earlier e-commerce argument. But very quickly, we as a town will assign different values to Chichikov, which means every single character in this novel, in the second part, is being reevaluated with different contexts, we're putting assigning different meaning to them. Even us as as readers or as people, what once was useful is now useless. We don't have a need for them anymore. So what do you think that means in the in the greater spirit of this novel? Yeah, that's what's so heartbreaking is that we don't have an ending because I think that part of the story here is internalizing and how we view ourselves is what Google's trying to do with this part of the story. But Did you just also call him Google? Gogol. <laughs> and then we see the external part of this, of Russia as a whole, and how society is, is very complex, and how you're going to have all these different avenues of Russian culture and society and economics pressing down on you, but then you have your own internal greed or value system, what you think is more important in life or what you want out of life that is going to be combating and knocking those around all the time. And that's the kind of the personal struggle. And he's saying here, Gogol is saying, hey, Russia, we're going to have to make up our minds of where we want to go, and we need to decide soon because we're at a breaking point in our country. Right, we have that quote about the Troika speeding down out of its way, you know, kind of like taking its own road in a sense. And I think there's even references, like kind of like even parallels to that in the Brothers Karamazov from Dostoevsky, and there's several Dead Souls references to that. But it's kind of that question to your point of what are we going to be, Russia? And I think it's almost even kind of prophetic here, where Russia moves towards, it's one of the it, it, it succeeds in executing communism for a period of time, right? Where communism is this idea of this is what the value of this product is. Like we're going to centrally control production, centrally control pricing. 
And how do you do that in the spirit of how we each assign value to things differently? Like that's kind of the free market like product. And that's kind of like what Google has painted a picture of here is this idea that we assign value differently. And maybe that is something that is something we need to dig deeper into as a country when it comes to surfs and how we use these surfs and what these surfs mean from how we use them for greed, how we use them to gain and garner more in the same way that Plyushkin and Sobekovich did, the way that we take advantage of others for a very subjective purpose. Yeah, so in historians, we look at this, we sometimes refer to this as the rubber band effect, where we had such strict differences in the social economic classes of Russia of where there's these divides. And then when there finally is choice and freedom, what happens is we see them bounce the complete opposite direction. And with that, we have them move towards that communist ideal where there was Lots of poor people, very few wealthy, rich people that were, you know, being successful. And then, bam, everybody's going to be treated equal. Everybody's going to get their fair share in communism. And, of course, it doesn't work out too well for them. And I think that goes back to kind of like my third point, which is um, I think we talked about it. I think I had to cut it out (laughs) of some of our videos because I didn't like the way it turned out. But you and I have talked about Frank O'Connor before, whose criticisms over Gogol, he uses kind of the little man effect with the idea that he Gogol uses this guy that can't influence society. He has no social value. He can't climb up out of his current position that we saw in the nose that we see in overcoat that we're going to see in diary of a madman that we're coming up to here soon. Gogol once again has taken Chichikov, a character where we're kind of asking, can he change his context? Can he change his value? Because Gogol, in a very self-insertion moment, again, oh my gosh, another novel with self-insertion, three in one month, what are the chances? <laughs> that talks about how Chichikov is this dude that, like, just takes advantages of others. Like, he's kind of like the main character from, like, in our in, uh, in our time from Lermontov, where we see someone who's just willing to take advantage of others that doesn't care. Uh, it's it's But at, at the expense of can he raise his social status... And Gogol always pictures the little man as not being able to. But I wonder, since this isn't finished, how would he have taken this novel in the next two sections? Yeah, so here I I struggle with this because I kind of disagree with O'Connor that is somebody that's taking advantage of bad people, a bad person themselves? Or is this kind of a Robin Hood, you know, take from the rich and give to the poor? I don't know. Chichikov isn't a hero. He isn't good. But I don't think he's bad either. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. He's he's not a hero. But I don't know what to ascribe to him because unfortunately the, the series is incomplete. My, my understanding is, I don't know if this is Gogol acclaim, but it also is under Frank O'Connor's writings where allegedly this was supposed to be kind of like a Don Quixote, kind of like Dante's Inferno type adventure where we're going to have three parts, right? This was... The first part, Inferno, right? We'll probably burned, right? But then we're going to have the Purgatorio and then the Paradiso, right? I wonder how he would have taken this character differently because we only have a couple chapters of book two. And it's a lot of the same way, but he's applying himself differently, which was kind of like Gogol's self-insertion at the end of 11 where he's talking about like he had, he had ambition, baby, but he applied it wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. 
So guys, let us know what you would love to have seen Chichikov go through in his journey down below in the comments. We have tons of Gogol talks. He's arguably one of my favorite authors of all time. We're going to leave a playlist down below where you can check out our other Gogol talks. Let's move into our subjective wrap-up and ratings, which has nothing to do with an objective you know, value of the story. This is just how did it hit us. Crypto, give us your rating. So I don't want to give this one a number because I think it would be too low and it'd be insulting. You guys know that I love Gogol. I love his short stories. And I think that's where he truly shines. And I think that it's one unfair to rate this one too harshly or give it a number or anything, um, any subjective really rating because it's incomplete. That's just, uh, that's not fair in my mind. Uh, the second thing is it just, it wasn't for me. I missed the zaniness. I missed the craziness. I missed the magical elements that I felt like defined his writing style. And maybe he was trying to go for something more unique here. Maybe he was trying to go something that was more life-changing and altering and doing more for more people in Russia. The, the pen is mightier than the sword. But for me, it just, it didn't land. And I felt like sometimes through this story, my wife teases me about this all the time. She likes the Wheel of Time series, but in small doses that Robert Jordan just goes overboard in his descriptions of the little tiny doilies and what color they are and how the ruffles are. <laughs> and I felt like sometimes with some of these characters, there was a little bit too much elaboration on some of the things and some of the descriptions here. It, it felt bloated at times. Didn't mean that I didn't enjoy it. It didn't mean that there weren't some great nuggets there. But I think that if you are a Gogol lover, you need to know that this is not his short stories. Which I think people of this channel know that the short form is probably some of our favorites. We love novels, but we also really love short stories probably more than the average reader. Google clearly shines in the short stories. This one was okay for me. I really want to dive more into his plays, like the Inspector General and the Taurus Bulba. I'll, I'll look up how to actually pronounce those in the future. <laughs> I'm gonna give <laughs> no, this. <you> won't. <laughs> I'm gonna give this a Chichikov out of ten. Not too great. <laughs> Not too bad. But hey, it was okay, right? It had some uh, had some potential there. So guys, if you are down for more literature discussions like this, if you're into this sort of thing hit that subscribe button. Join us on this adventure as we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.